David Tamez, and this is Lawrence Talks, a community podcast dedicated to introducing traditional philosophical and humanist topics and to exploring the ethical issues that arise from local events. On this episode, I speak with philosophers Polo Camacho and Nadia Ruiz, both study at the University of Kansas. Respectively, Polo and Nadia research issues and questions in the philosophy of science and social science. I talk to them about their research, the questions asked in their respective fields, and how their scholarship informs their understanding of the current pandemic. Our podcast is produced thanks in part to our partners at the Hall Center for the Humanities, IDRH, KU Philosophy Department, and the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and online at lawrencetalks.org. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome to this episode of Lawrence Talks. I'm your host, David Tamez. Today, we have a special COVID-related discussion. For this discussion, we're going to focus primarily on the philosophy side of things and introduce some interesting questions and points of interest in relation to COVID. But in order to help us with this discussion, I I have uh, on our show today two KU grad students in philosophy, one in, in Polo Camacho, who is a PhD candidate studying primarily issues in philosophy of science and philosophy of biology. And we have Nadia Ruiz, who's a P- also a PhD candidate uh, studying philosophy of social science and philosophy of economics. Polo, I'd like to begin with you and, and just getting a general sense uh, for our audience, what sort of issues make up the field of philosophy of science and biology? What sort of questions do, do they tip, typically explore? Good, yeah. In the philosophy of science, there are a broad range of questions we could ask. Uh, we could ask questions about theories in science, such as, are theories in science true? And if so, in what sense are they true? Uh, we also ask questions related to scientific practice, so issues regarding measurement, the accuracy of certain scientific theories or instruments, even values in science. There's a burgeoning interest in the value aspect of science and the sort of values that inform scientific practice. I work in uh, philosophy of science and some of the questions I'm working on right now are questions related to the philosophy of precision and measurement, but I'm also interested in questions at the heart of philosophy of biology. And in that field, certain questions that we might ask are what is a gene? What is an organism? What are the mechanisms, the underlying mechanisms, um, if any, underpinning evolution by natural selection? So they're just a broad range of questions we could ask in the philosophy of biology related to biological practice and the biological sciences. Uh, I'm interested in questions, in particular questions related to gene editing technology, Uh, principles in molecular science. And so some of the questions I'm working on right now are whether these principles are useful to science, that is principles in molecular science, uh, whether they're useful, whether they're accurate, and what their philosophical and ethical implications are for society. Thank you. And Nadia, same for you. What sort of questions are asked in the field of social science uh, and economics or in the philosophy of, of social science and economics? 
Okay, thank you, David, for having us. So I think, so very basic, like, one-on-one philosophy of social science. Uh, I think you will have questions. I think the main one, like, what's the main difference between social science and the natural science? I think that will be the first question, like, what makes the difference between those two, right? Some people want to say that it has to do with the nature of the phenomenon that we study, right? So social science is kind of like human science, right? Like how human interacts and like, or like cultures and stuff like that. So then comes the other type of questions. So if the nature of these two phenomena or like what they want to study each, like natural science and social science, like whether social science should follow the type of methods that the natural sciences are doing, right? So then you come another set of interesting questions, for example, like whether social science should be like a naturalist type of science, you know, like you're like the type of thing that you're looking for is kind of like these causal mechanisms or like natural, like loss, right? And some people will say, well, yeah, that's actually what social science is interested in looking at or like finding out. Or you will have other type of people that will say, you know, actually the social science is not about that. It's kind of like more like an interpretive type of science. Like you, you will give some kind of like meaning to why people behave like that, right? Like you interpret their action, but it's not like because it's it's under any type of causal law that people act in certain way, right? So that will be kind of a one like simple question that you will see like in a introduction philosophy to social science class. Another thing it will be like, for example, if social science by itself is kind of like, it, it's about macro, even like when you're like an individual, right? Like you're not just like a tiny thing, like atoms, you kind of like, you can see people, right? So, but then you have one type of like what individual human behavior, or you have like aggregate behavior, right? So the question is like, how do you explain this? Right, like what will be the right way to explain social phenomena by it will be kind of like because of the sum of individual behavior, or you can just explain it as just like an emergent kind of thing by its own. That will be like another very interesting kind of question that you discuss in philosophy of social science. Um, I think another one will be like the type of different methods that some science, like social sciences, use, like what's the epistemic value of this, for example, in anthropology, like they use that like, like ethnographies, like that's kind of like something that you don't see in the natural sciences, right? But why we should take this as having like an epistemic value, like what's the epistemic value? That would be kind of like another type of thing that you study in social science. And lastly, I think it's just understanding the nature of concepts such race, gender, culture, right? Like institutions, governments, I think that's something that you will see like in an intro to social science class. Um, I do a philosophy of economics. I think my research is in philosophy of economics. And in philosophy of economics, I think from what I had just said, I think it's very related type of questions, but like not very specific to just like economics as a realm, right? So for example, you will have types of questions like, okay, so what type of science is economics? Right, so, and then there's a lot of people that will say, well, economics, it's kind of like a hard science, like natural, why? Because it's, you use a lot of math in economics, right? And so people say, okay, that's cool. But then people say, well, but it's not like the hard sciences, right? Because, you know, it's an inexact, inexact science. So what they mean by that, well, is because 
in economics, you don't have like laws of nature that they're always the case. They go to tendencies. And that's the reason why you have a lot of um, the Ceteri Pyros cl classes and assumptions like, you know, all things being equal, then this is the tendency that will happen. And people just like wonder, like, does that actually say something about the reliability about economics? Or you can be a little bit more specified or detailed in the sense, like, you know, more like how you measure certain variables in economics, like whether you can actually have like a very formalized way to measure this. For example, whether the measures that economists economists use now to measure the CPI, for example, consumer price index in a changing world. How you how you measure that? Because these type of variables have like a big impact in models by itself, right? So, but how you do it, like whether it's the right measure to do it. Uh, and models, right? Like I think a lot of philosophers of economics are very interested in models per se, because it seems that models in economics, although they're like with math, like they use math a lot, they're kind of different from other types of models in the sense, for example, the number of assumptions that they're used over there, or a lot of people want to say like the level of idealizations used in economic models are like way higher than in another ones, right? So people try to understand whether that actually makes these type of models less re reliable or not, right? Like just like, I mean, maybe there's like an epistemic value of them. And on my research, I actually, I'm trying to assess whether macroeconomic models need micro foundations, right? Like what, what grounds the need of micro foundations in macroeconomic models? And I'm trying to assess whether, whether either is because of an ontological reason or not, if you can get away with a micro foundation just because of a methodological argument, right? Like I'm trying to see if we can look at this problem just from like um, a methodological state of point of view, right? Like if without micro foundations, you can have more predictive accuracy, then the question will be like, then why will you need micro foundations if at the end of the day, what you want is predictive accuracy. So that's what I'm working now. Okay. And that's, that's a perfect sort of segue into what we want to discuss today, right? It's in, before we get to the specific case of COVID, I want to discuss, uh, generally speaking, mo models and modeling. So could both of you speak generally, what do models attempt to do and what are they, what are they modeling? Cool. So models, an interesting way to think about models is, um, and I use this example in our last graduate student discussion about COVID-19, an interesting way to think about them is you know, we model things such as trains or DNA, right? The double helix. Uh, if you go to a museum, you see models of our hominid ancestors, especially if you're in a natural history museum, there's models of the solar system. And in these examples, we're dealing with concrete models, that is physical objects. And models have different purposes or different aims. So if you're going into a museum, and you see a model of the solar system, there's something that's trying, uh, something is trying to be conveyed in modeling the solar system, right? We're dealing with like spheres, physical spheres that are kind of like circulating around each other or, you know, rather the sun and other planets revolving around the, the sun. And in that scenario, what's trying to be conveyed, maybe the structure of the planets and how they relate to other planets is what is trying to be conveyed in those examples. So we have concrete models and we also have more abstract models. And in this case, we're dealing with things like formulas and equations. 
So there are a plethora of models that are used in the sciences. In the biological sciences, we might use a model to better understand how predator and prey relationships work. So Lotka-Volterra models or equations might be used to better understand how these relationships between predator populations and prey populations, to better understand those interactions. In uh, genetics, we might use the Hardy-Weinberg model to understand the stability of gene frequencies over time and over generations. And again, the aims could be different. In the case of the Hardy-Weinberg law, uh, what we're trying to understand is gene stability across generations, how stable certain genes are going to be across, say, offspring, parents, et cetera. In the case of the Lotka-Volterra equations, we're, we're trying to understand something completely different, namely the relationship between predator populations and prey populations. And so models can range from concrete models that we see, physical concrete models that we see at a museum or at a store, or at a science store, or even in a lab, uh, to all the way to more abstract models, equations that we use to maybe better understand a, a phenomenon or predict phenomenon. So as Nadia pointed out, um, some models we may use because they have predictive power, while others we favor because they have representational accuracy. And so in my opinion, I think a good way to think about models, at least an entryway, is to think about a physical model. Physical models are trying to convey something. They have a certain aim, as do more abstract formulas, and all the way to computer simulations. So this is something Nadia and I were talking about earlier. Uh, computer simulations can be used to model things like human behavior or, uh, again, gene frequencies. Um, and so that is sort of a, a good way to start thinking about models, in my opinion. Um, yeah, and just to, I think Paul did a very good kind of like explain, broad explanation of what models are. And I just, just to put something in like a little bit of salt to what Paul said, I think, I think it is important to understand that what models at the end of the day attempt to do is to give us some epistemic access, kind of like some understanding, some knowledge of things that we cannot know just by empirical observation. I think that will be something that, you know, like, although we can see what is going on, these models give us some very interesting epistemic access that we cannot have without them. That's, and and it's, it has nothing to do with that. Oh, it's because they're representing 100% the phenomenon, right? Like it's because sometimes you construct your models and you design your models with a specific research question that you will get some information just for that specific question, right? So for example, target direct modeling. Target direct modeling is specifically when you model an specific target system because you're trying to understand a feature or just maybe not just a feature, but just the main causal thing making this target system. And that's the reason why you make a model of that specific target system, right? And as Paul was saying, maybe what you're very interested about this target system is not so much to have a full causal explanation of the mechanism, but more like a predictive behavior of that. So, and in, in, even with those two different, it will be very different in the way that you model, because we need to understand that models are there to help scientists to have better understanding of what they want to understand. I think that's what, and yeah, that's what they attempt to do, right? And I think 
what you say, what, what are they modeling? I think it will depend a lot of the, on the researcher, like what the researcher wants to know. I mean, that's basic. I mean, because for example, sometimes you have hypothetical models, right? And hypothetical models are not from any type of target system. They're just like, kind of like a general, from general phenomena. Like, okay, this is going on. I'm going to make a model of this. I don't have any specific question. I'm just going to make a model of this and let's see what happens. Right. And you start like, because you say you start like doing a lot of stuff. It's, it's an art in itself. A lot of people say, and you, you just start like learning in the process. So I think that's basically, I, I think what are they modeling will depend a lot in the, in the researcher or like whatever who wants to make a model or like the reason why you're making a model. That's mainly how it depends what are, what model, models are modeling. I guess uh, by that question, I, I also, I guess I was looking for, generally speaking, or even quite, I mean, more, quite simply, whether they're trying to represent or they were trying to uh, abstract a, a, a mechanism of some kind, they're looking at some phenomenon in the world. Is that, is that fair to say that, that it's, uh, it's something that is observed by the researcher and they simply want to either represent it in some way or they want to uh, produce predictions of what might occur were these actions or this phenomena to continue in the way that it is, that it's currently going? Yeah, I think that just kind of going back to what Nadia was saying, sometimes we want to describe, right? So sometimes we're in the business of describing something with high fidelity or, or, that, or, or I should say high accuracy. In that example, or in that particular instance, we may use one model, but there are instances or cases at least anyway, where um, and Nadia, may, you might be able to speak to this a little better, where we might use a model to say, predict human behavior or human action. Uh, we might have a really simple model that says, well, if you take a belief and a desire, if an agent has a belief and a desire, then we should expect the following action to come about. Um, and in that example, all we're doing is trying to make predictions about how people are going to act in the world. However, uh, we might say, is that we might ask, is the model, uh, the BDA model, uh, accurate? Does it accurately reflect the way people cognize and think? Um, some may argue, no, that's not the way people work. People don't necessarily, I mean, there are a bunch of things happening in a person's head, many belief states, many mental states. Moreover, there's a lot of influence from the environment. Um, and so certain actions may not be predicated on there being beliefs and desires, but rather some sort of stimulus response interaction between that person and their environment. And so there we have an example where you're working with a model that may have a lot of predictive power, but it may not accurately describe things. And so again, I think this goes back to what Nadia was saying. In that instance, we're in the business of predicting some phenomenon, not necessarily representing the phenomenon. And using something like the BDA model is sufficient for that purpose. If we were interested in modeling human cognition and how it relates to action, that may require a completely different set of assumptions. That may require a completely di different set of uh, entities that we posit. And so that could be a, an interesting example in which these two ideas come apart. You have predictive models and you have models that attempt to represent something with high fidelity. And you may have completely, you know, you may have other models completely. Maybe you're not in the business of predicting or representing, but rather you're in the business of explaining. So that's mm -hmm. another aim. Sometimes we want to explain something. 
And perhaps explaining that thing won't require that phenomenon under investigation won't require a sort of reductive, let's represent every aspect of that given phenomenon with the utmost fidelity. Um, in that example, we're just trying to explain X, not predict it, not even represent it. We just want to explain it. Exactly. And I think it's important to, for what Paul was saying, it's not like mo- like scientists or modelers make the model and see what's going to happen. When he's, when Paul is talking about like the f- fidelity accuracy is because model models, once they're done with their model, they need to, they need to make sure that the model is doing what they wanted it to do, right? So there's like a fidelity criteria, like whether I wanted my model to explain like the causal mechanisms, then you look whether you actually achieve that and what was it, what's the degree that your model is doing it. But if, for example, you say like, I, I really, I'm not into that business. I just want like prediction. Then you you see if your model is doing actually the fidelity criteria, like how the outcomes that your model is giving you actually are like close enough to what actually is going on, right? So models, modelers and scientists are always looking for these two fidelity criteria, like whether just to make sure that the model is doing what they're supposed to be doing, right? So, and that's important because it's not like model is like a modeler is just gonna go model something and say, oh, look, it is explaining. No, it's not that so much about chance. Actually, it's a very formalized and systematized, you know, construction. Like, and that's, they need to follow these type. And sometimes, you know, I think a lot of people will say, yeah, you know, you know, but even in the process, you will, you will learn that your model actually, instead of being a predictive type of model, you have everything to make it an explanatory model. So then you can change, okay, you maybe now that I have this tool, I will see what's going on and maybe not care that much anymore about the predictive accuracy, right? Or it can be the other way around, you know, like maybe you wanted to start like wanting to understand the causal mechanism and then just figure out that your model is very good at predicting, right? So then as a, ma- as a, as a scientist, I think both roads is like, it goes to the same thing that I said at the beginning. It gives you some epistemic access that you didn't have at the beginning of your research. And I think that's, that's something very cool about models. And in the case of, of covid What's uh, what sort of models are being produced in this in this instance? Other models you discussed and the sort of goals that models modelers and researchers can have, in the in from your understanding, uh, what sort of models do we get in the case of COVID? So, in my opinion, from what I've been, because I just want to make sure to the public that I mean, COVID nineteen is new. I'm not a, I'm not an epidemiologist. This is for me just as a researcher is a very good like source of knowledge right like just to research and understand at the same time that it's going on right so i'm understanding as days pass by right and i'm learning as days pass by but so far for what i've been reading and researching and understanding i think for example the sir model which is one of the ones that is used um, in the uk to see the pandemic i think for example that model is constructed with the aim of predicting like what will happen if this and that right and they start like playing with the variables like what will happen if if people which is um susceptible do not do social distancing well more infected people will get every you know and then oh what will happen and stuff like that right because the sir model is trying to understand 
how the population, if we were like these three type of people susceptible, infected, and recover, work with this new virus in and out, right? So for example, I think the SIR model, its main purpose is to give us predictive outcomes, like what will happen in this? But that's that's my opinion. Yeah, so exactly. I think that one of the models that's being that was used in the UK or one of the models that's being referenced in the UK is the SIR model. And um, that model is being used, as Nadia said, to make certain predictions about the course of the pandemic. Um, specifically, that model takes into consideration various degrees of social distancing and human interaction. So you can play around with the model and see what a, a reduction, a great reduction of social distancing will do to the curve. Uh, that's to say the, the curve that everybody's talking about, the curve that tells us about the number of people infected and the number of people who are going to die, uh, or actually the number of people infected. And so that model is being used in the UK. And from what I understand, one of the solutions or one of the public health measures that's being informed by the model is herd immunity. And so we're looking at the model to understand how many people have to be infected by the virus before something like herd immunity happens. And herd immunity is simply a case where a certain percentage of the population has the virus and therefore can't pass it around anymore because they're immune to it. And so it's sort of measuring the increase of cases and then the subsequent drop given the fact that a lot of people had it and are now immune. The models that are being used by the CDC, so on the CDC website, and anybody can go on there and look up the forecasts of the COVID-19 pandemic, and you'll notice that there are a bunch of models being employed by the CDC. In fact, they use a version of what I think, I mean, again, as Nadia said, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not an, epidemi an epidemiological modeler or anything like that. But my understanding is you're using the SEIR model, which is a version of the SIR model, along with, I think it's called the IMHO model and the MOBS model. There are a bunch of models, but some of these models want to, you know, going back to what Nadia was saying, the aim of certain models is to see, predict how many cases will result in the United States, given that social distancing measures are, are upheld within the community. Other predictions are, well, we just want to see how many people are going to be infected given an increase or decrease in social distancing. And so in the case of COVID, models, mathematical models are being used to understand things like how many people are going to be infected by this if, say, we reduce social interaction by something like 20% or 40% or 60%. And then we can generate a curve that makes it, that allows us to see how many cases of COVID there are going to be in the United States and potentially, you know, given that we know how, what the mortality rate of the virus is, how many deaths are going to be. And so in the case of COVID-19 and the spread of the coronavirus, uh, what at least the United States is trying to understand is how to flatten the curve. How can we get the curve from infecting millions of people? How can we go from there to maybe a scenario where it's only affecting maybe a million people or, you know, a few hundred thousand? Um, and so that's how the modeling is being used in the United States, as far as I'm aware. Listeners might be, uh, who, are, who listen to this might be asking, if part of the goal of models is to look at a given phenomena and, and represent it in some way or, or uh, base, produce predictions in some way based on the phenomenon seen, 
how is it the case that there can be multiple models, as you said, being used if the goal is to model this one thing? Or is, that, or is it the case that that's, that's, it's not necessarily the case that one thing is being modeled? Uh, so you, you could either discuss this in the case of COVID or generally speaking, how is it the case that uh, multiple models can be generated? One phenomenon is being looked at. Good, yeah. So I think that in the case of modeling, and this is uh, going back to some of the stuff Nadia was talking about, it's possible to have a single phenomenon and to ask various questions about that particular phenomenon. So take, for example, a population of human beings here in the United States. Uh, say we, uh, we're looking at, we're observing the same phenomenon. And to take the example of the economist versus the biologist, the biologist may want to understand the rate of gene frequencies within that population, in which case I'm going to use this model, right? It's a, a model that makes certain assumptions about how genes work. That same population, we can take that same population and ask a completely different question. And going back to something Nadia was saying is maybe we want to understand aggregate thinking or aggregate social structures, right? In that case, we're taking the same population, but we might generate a radically different model. Why? Because the question that we have regarding that same phenomenon is different. And so in a way, the question is putting constraints on the sort of models that we're using. And in the case of COVID-19, uh, I think it's good to point out that we're dealing with a single phenomenon, COVID-19, coronavirus, and the news in the media, right? Uh, it's, you know, the, what do you see? The headlines say something like COVID-19 or you know, coronavirus infected 2,000 people in this given, you know, community or whatever. Though we are dealing with a virus, there are a bunch of different questions we can ask with regards to the virus, so maybe we want to ask a hypothetical question like, what would happen if we continued acting the way we're acting? That is, what if we continued living life as normal and not social distancing? Maybe we want to see what would happen in terms of the number of people infected and the number of deaths, in which case I'll use that assumption and plug it into my model. I'll say something like, well, I'm assuming everyone is you know, acting as normal, business as usual. I'm not reducing social interaction at all. I'm just sort of, everyone on average is sort of living their lives. I may generate a model in that scenario that gives me certain values. And that, you know, may make me go, oh my God, I don't want to, I don't want that many people to be infected. And this is a hypothetical if none of us change our social interactions with one another. Uh, we might look at that model and go, no, 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 no. We do not want to have that many deaths. We might say, what if we reduce social interaction generally across the board by something like 50%? We might have another model that perhaps maybe generates a radically different curve. And so I'm dealing with a hypothetical scenario where I don't reduce my social interaction, my social interactions. I'm asking what's going to happen if I don't reduce my social interactions. I generate a certain number of cases with the model. And I might then react to that model and go, well, I don't want that to be the case. I want to greatly reduce the number of people infected. So what happens if I implement, you know, strict social distancing measures, then I can plug that assumption into another model and it'll show me a radically different output. Just to kind of wrap up, you know, in the case of COVID, we're asking a bunch of questions about COVID, about a single phenomenon. And just kind of going back to the point that Nadia was, was bringing up, we might employ different models given the questions that we're asking. Different models will offer certain solutions or answers 
to very specific questions that we're asking about a single phenomenon? Yeah, so I think what, um, so for example, uh, just to add something to what you were saying, Polo, I think, yes, the model, for example, the model that are more like, um, have a little bit more of understanding of how it works is, as, as, again, is the SIR model. And for example, in that model, if you ask me, like, so what are they modeling or like, what are they trying to represent? Of course, I don't think it, generally speaking, it has nothing to do. I mean, well, it has something to do with the virus, right? With COVID-19, it has to do with it, right? But it's not so much about like the nature of COVID-19. It's not about that. It's about how the virus wants it is in a population, how it behaves in the population. That is our model, what it's trying to do. It's not so much like, oh, you know, COVID-19 has this new feature, or like COVID-19, like blah, blah, blah. No, it is about, okay, COVID-19 is over here. We know certain things about COVID-19. It has this amount of spread. It has this amount of mortality. Now I want to know how that, Little that I know about COVID-19 will affect once it's out there and populations where are like getting infected, right? So for example, the SRR model, I think that's what they're trying to model, like how once the virus is over there with these few things that we know, how it's gonna see the behavior like susceptible, infected, recover, right? And for example, another important thing that we need to talk about it is like with about herd humanity, some of assumptions, I mean, and this is something I think you're going to ask us later, but I'm just like jumping in now. Sorry, David. So for example, some of the assumptions in the models are highly idealized or like highly away from what actually is the case, right? So for example, the SI, our model assumes that no one is being born and no one is dying, right? Actually, they think the, the cycle goes, you don't have the virus, which is susceptible, you get infected, and then you get recovered. Boom, you're immune. But reality is like, you get the virus, I mean, you're susceptible, you might get the virus, and then you go recover, and you might die. And that's that's very interesting because the model will tell you that too, because it's kind of like a statistical kind of thing. Like they recover people because of the mortality of the thing. But that's important too when we talk about herd uh, humanity, right? People say, oh, let's just put everyone and eventually we're going to get it and then we're going to become immune. And then, well, but then you need to do kind of like what is a trade off because it's not that easy. People will go out, people, or in fact, will get the virus. But then some people, it's not going to get immune. Why? Yeah, because they're going to die. So this is the kind of things that I can see why talking about like what models are for is important because then when the models are not checking actually what goes on, people will think that models are not reliable. But I think, I think if we get a little more patience and try to understand everything that it goes with the model because they will tell you about, oh, this is going on, this is the outcome. But I mean, there is this, there they are statistical models, right? That they tell you what percentage of people can get it, like how many people will can get it if you're like in a crowd where like only one individual has the virus and stuff like that. So it's important to talk about that too, right? So um, although they have these very big assumptions and high idealized features they can tell you something right like about what's what's going on or like 
tell us something about the behavior of the buyers or like, you know, but I mean, I think the ESIR model is trying to model that, right? Like the virus is here. I know this about the virus. So how it behaves if we have a population when you have these three type of people. So to capture what you, what you just said and what Polo just said, these models aren't looking at the internal mechanisms or the essential aspects of the, of the virus itself. It's looking at the observable effects that the virus will have and the behavior in reaction to that virus will, will have in a, in a population. Is that, is that right? Yes. And I, and I think the reason why, for, I, I mean, and I'm assuming there's a lot of other models that actually, in fact, are trying to understand that other side of COVID-19, to understand what COVID-19 is, to understand what the evolution of the virus and stuff like that. Right? But for example, the SIR model is not trying to do that. It's trying to, to, to catch up another feature of the COVID-19 too, right? So it's not like they don't care about like how COVID-19 is, but I think this specific model is just interested in this specific behavior. You mentioned something earlier too uh, in your response that maybe this is where philosophy philosophy and, and practitioners and modelers uh, move apart a little bit. Modelers are using assumptions uh, or rely on assumptions that from a philosophical standpoint are false. But yes. is, that, is that necessarily problematic? So it's, it's the modeler is saying to the philosopher, but we need these assumptions. We need these assumptions to get our models off the ground. But the philosopher is like, but they're false though. Can you kind of speak to that that uh, dynamic and that uh, and yeah and that sort of cla- that point of clash? Okay, so I think, and as a philosopher, <laughs> I mean one very tricky side of the argument because I actually I'm aware that these assumptions are false, but I'm in the side of the argument that think like you know, but we need them in order to make the model work out, right? So, for example, and and okay, we need them. And it's not like I'm just I'm stubborn. I just want to use them to make models. It's not that the case. I think I'm in this side of, I'm in this side of the debate in philosophy of science per se, right? It's because I think the model, the model, the modelers, right? Or the scientists who are making the models design the model with some type of constraint with like these assumptions, these like highly idealized features because they trying to, to, I mean, they abstract away a lot of stuff, right? Which is kind of one of the assumptions, like for example, in rational choice theory, they assume rationality. And they assume that rationality means the following. You have uh, transitive preferences, complete knowledge, and if you prefer, yes, exactly. You, you have particular preference, like, through all your life, right? Like stuff like that. So for example, transitive preferences, you will be rational if, for example, if you choose, if you like oranges more than apples. So you say that you like oranges uh, more than apples. And I say, hey, David, look, do you want an orange or do you want an apple? Well, that will be easy, right? You'll say, well, the orange. But then let's say that you like apples more than you like bananas, right? And then I offer you an orange and a banana. The rational thing for you to, will be to choose which one? The orange, right? Because between the orange and the banana, of course, you the apple and the banana, you prefer the apple because you like it 
if the, your degree of likeness is orange but apples banana, right? So you will at the end. Let's say that you you like apples. No, you like oranges more than apples. Yes. Okay. So if you like apples over oranges and then oranges over bananas, you should like apples over bananas. Exactly. That's right. Because in that in that assumption, you're not you're you're not taking into account difference of taste, right? You have transitive taste. So all things being considered, that you will always choose oranges over apples. It doesn't matter any kind of situation, right? That that will be your choice because you you cannot say that tomorrow you might like apples more than oranges. So if, for example, if we if we don't take in, into account difference of taste, your your preferences are transitive. And that's an assumption. Why? Because we know we change your taste constantly, right? Sometimes you like black, sometimes you like orange or stuff like that. But rational choice doesn't take that into account. There's other models that will take into account change of uh, preferences, but rational choice theory doesn't take that into account. Because if you don't, if you don't have transitive preferences, then you're not rational. So for example, these type of assumptions, people will say, well, but that's, that's stupid. I mean, people change states and people is not rational. But then rational choice theory is like, yeah, I mean, yeah, we know that. But what is important is that if all things being considered, if you don't change your preferences, then you're rational, then you can make these type of decisions or choices, right? And people don't like that kind of idea because they think that you're not the Victim actually how reality is, but there I think there's some kind of like epistemic value of that, right? Like if, if you just look at what the, the model is constrained to tell you, you can know it's that, right? Like you can know like, well, yeah, if I don't change my taste, of course I'm gonna choose oranges over apples. And you know that now. And the model is telling you that, right? So I think with these type of things, I'm in the part of saying like, yeah, I don't think necessarily models are just false or not reliable just because they have these sort of assumptions. I think actually because of these assumptions, we can actually know stuff because this is the other part. The simpler your model, it will be, it's easier to manage because sometimes as more data or more things you add to your model, your curves or anything that you're measuring, it's going to be very, I mean, it's not going to have a form. So you're not going to have any type of information, right? So maybe it will be like a trade-off how much simple you wanted it, right? But I think it doesn't matter at the end of the day, all models have false assumptions, but that doesn't make them false. I mean, or not reliable. And sometimes adding more assumptions to a model can be more problematic because we think more is better, but that, that's not always the case. No, no, because then you will have a very weird curve that you can just not have any type of information of it. And <laughs> the simpler the model, the more predictive accuracy too, which is it's another type of debate that you will see with philosophers of science. And again, I think it's a really, really important to emphasize that it, we have certain agendas and certain questions when it comes to certain phenomena. When we're asking questions about COVID-19 spreadability within a population, that may not require me to necessarily look at the properties of the virus, right? I may have to look at the properties or relational properties of the virus. That is to say, I may want to look at its infectability, right? How likely, how much more likely am I to be infected by the coronavirus and say the seasonal flu, right? And so that may require me to look at aspects of the coronavirus. But then if we're looking for something like a vaccine, I may have to delve in a little bit more deep. 
directly into the nature of the virus itself. It may be useful to know whether or not we're dealing with a coronavirus or a flu of some kind or a completely different entity. And so I think that depending on the question, that will ultimately lead us to whether or not we should accurately represent the thing we're looking at. In the case of, you know, modeling its spreadability, maybe all we want to look at is the likelihood that you're going to be infected by it more so than if, say, you're dealing with a seasonal flu, in which case you are, in some sense, looking at aspects of it, but you're not describing it in high fidelity. You're not offering this overarching representational sort of picture of what the virus is. You just want to know the likelihood that uh, it'll infect people within a given population. And so, again, I, I, I just think it's important to emphasize first that whether or not we represent the thing in question will depend on the question that we're asking. And then the second thing to sort of recharacterize something that you're talking about, David. So you, on the one hand, you have the philosopher saying something like, well, how, you know, could you be using this model, right? It's false, strictly speaking. You're not accurately capturing anything. You're not representing anything. Well, I think this is exactly where philosophers can kind of get to work, right? You know, because we oftentimes deal with models, in the sciences that do real work in the real world, yet they're not representing the thing in question. And so that I think is just a, a generally speaking, an interesting philosophical question. How is it that these models, like even you know models in uh, macrophysics, right? These models in macrophysics, a lot of them make assumptions that are strictly speaking untrue, right? Some of these models assume that no other forces are acting on an object when that's clearly not the case, right? Yet we make these assumptions and we're able to do things like build skyscrapers and uh, make assumptions about how far this ball is going to go if I throw it in the air. Um, and so again, I, I think that it, firstly, I want to say that whether or not we're accurately representing anything is going to depend on the research question that we're asking and be the sort of wanting to sort of the, reject a model simply because it doesn't represent things. I think it's like, well, that's because there's a specific agenda right? The agenda is representing the thing. And of course, this particular model, you know, I'm not using it for representation, I'm using it for prediction. And so um, I think that's a really interesting place for philosophers to kind of go, wow, this model may not be representing anything, but it's doing real work in the real world. I'm able to predict something real. And I think that's a really interesting, I don't know if I'd call it a puzzle, but an interesting sort of question or issue that we may want to delve into as philosophers. So uh, one thing that that might be taken away from this conversation and a issue or topic I want to end on is in, in relation to policymaking. On the one hand, some, some people will want to say, well, we have to listen to the science. We have to listen to the science. But so far, at least as someone might, uh, for some reason or another, take from this conversation, well, it seems like the science is kind of shaky that they're using assumptions that, as you mentioned, are, are false. And yeah, they get predictive accuracy in some way, or they, they, are, they can be used for those points, but they're, they're still using on, on false, false assumptions. Why should we still rely on, on the science here? Well, so I think that the bridge between the modeling of the coronavirus and the policymaking, I think when we go into the policymaking, we typically make appeal to certain values, you know, because when we're dealing with a model, we're not necessarily making any appeal to anybody's values. Uh, we're not making appeal to morality in any way, shape, or form. Nevertheless, we begin with the question, 
With the coronavirus, I think this is a question everybody wants to know, is how bad will it get? And then the model can make certain predictions and tell us how bad things get if we continue, as I said earlier, living life as normal. Uh, then the model can provide certain insight if I reduce my social interactions, right? And we're seeing this in the United States. We're seeing that because we're able to enter the mitigation phase, we've been able to see a flattening a plateau of cases and also even a down, downhill sort of curve in certain counties and in certain states. And that's all due to mitigation. And mitigation is informed by the modeling. We're able to look at what certain variables do within the model. And if we tweak with those variables, we can say, oh, wow, if uh, you change, you know, uh, kind of going back to the R naught, which is uh, the something that Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Deborah Burks mention a lot in these press briefings. If you look at the R naught, the number of people that you're exposed to, that makes a big difference to the course of the pandemic and to the number of people that are infected. And so one of the reasons I think it's important to take these models seriously is because we are asking a question at the very beginning that concerns all of us, right? We wanna know what we have to do in order to slow the course of the pandemic. And maybe the model's not gonna make, give us accurate representations of what everybody's doing, right? There's variability across the United States and across various countries, but for the most part, it's gonna give us some information that may be useful for slowing the pandemic. Um, and this is, a, again, I think an assumption that people make about the sciences. It's the sciences are in a way Socratic. We ask a question, we develop some sort of answer to that question, and we determine whether that answer is sufficient or not. So kind of going back to something Navia said too, I might ask a question, create a model, and it turns out the model's highly, uh, it has really high fidelity. It's representing the world in a really accurate way. But what if I wanted prediction? In that case, uh, maybe the solution or the answer that my model is providing isn't sufficient, in which case I need to make other, other assumptions or make appeal to other models. And so I feel like the sciences aren't perfect. The more information we acquire about the coronavirus and the cases, the more accurate the modeling is going to be. Uh, but at the very least in the United States, we know that something like mitigation is working and mitigation is ultimately being informed by the way we're modeling the virus. So I think that counts for something. Yeah, and I think on, on my view, or for, well, not on my view, actually for what I have been reading and understanding lately these past, I will say six months of my life trying to write a chapter of my dissertation, I think I have learn a lot about these, these constraints as some philosophers of science talk about assumptions and idealizations, right? They call them as a constraint, right? Like, and more in the sense because they're, they're designed to constrain the model. It's kind of like rules. They make these type of rules for the model to work in a specific way, right? So for example, when you play chess, Chess is constrained for a set of rules of how each chess piece should behave, right? So the models are actually constrained in that sense. So when you talk about like they add assumptions or like they abstract things or they idealize features, they're doing that because in some way they know why they're doing it. It's not like they're just like, oh, today I feel that I'm going to idealize gravity. No, I mean, they, they don't, they don't, I don't think they come up with that idea, right? They, they have 
some idea of why are they making these type of assumptions or why they're constraining the model in a specific way. And for example, I think epidemiologists in this sense, they know why they're making these type of assumptions. I think they they know what's was was the benefit of actually, for example, thinking that the population it's only about this prey type of persons or I think I think modelers and scientists when they add these assumptions that are false or they idealization which are false too, they they have some idea why this specific assumption will work for their model, right? And it can be because maybe they're looking for predictive accuracy and that like abstracting away a lot of time or like idealizing a lot of stuff, they will obtain that. But that doesn't mean that they don't know what they're like adding to the model, right? I think modelers and scientists are highly equipped to know why it's specific that they're making that assumption, although they know that it's not the case. So I think that's something that as persons in society, we should, we should not be so hard on scientists with this type of sayings that we heard, because I think they're prepared to actually know why they, they introduce these kind of things that constrain the model, right? Because they're doing it because of a reason. And just to finish, when you say about the question about policymaking, I think it's a very interesting question. I, I don't know if I have a concrete answer and more because I think when you take modeling and policy, or, or Scientific modeling and policy making, we need to take in advantage in, in, in consideration too that policy making comes with a set of constraints, like for example, values in a society, values in a government, and stuff like that, right? So sometimes you will have maybe two, two models modeling the same thing. And it will depend maybe in the set of values of the government that is trying to make the policy, which model get the information from or like for, and so it will be, it is interesting to see that one, I think for sure, I think in this, in this case, with COVID-19, I think policymakers, hence government should be working together with scientists. Like they actually need to work together. I think it will be I think it comes from both, you know, scientists maybe understanding what policymaking works a little bit and policymakers understanding how these models work, right? I think I think in this case it will be something that they both need to inform among them. You know, but for sure I think they need to I think policymaking should be informed by this model at, until a certain degree. I don't know what degree, but I think it 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 will be very good for society if that happens. Yeah, and to just kind of echo what Nadia is saying, I think that ultimately where, um, and Nadia, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think where we stand on the issue of modeling and whether modeling should be taken seriously in light of the fact that a lot of models make highly idealized assumptions that are false, is it's good for the public to know that models can still be useful even though they don't represent things accurately. And that's because the sciences are known for asking a diverse range of questions. So I think that's the first thing. You can still do serious science, even though your model of something like the coronavirus isn't 100% high fidelity. So I think that's worth pointing out is that the sciences still have something to offer, even though sometimes we're not in the business of, or the scientists are not in the business of representing 
every aspect of the thing we're investigating, A. And I think B, as Nadia said again, you know, maybe the model tells us something like mitigation will work if you employ it. Well, employing that, depending on the country you're in or the society that you belong to may look differently, right? So one issue that I think we've been running into the United States and a concern that people have is there's clearly a sense in which mitigation should happen in the United States. Social distancing should happen in the United States, but at the expense of what? Some people are concerned that it's happening at the expense of uh, civil liberties. And here we're running into the issue of what do you think, what are things people value? Some people don't want to get cited for being in a crowd of more than 10 people in, in a park or at a party. And they'll object to a mitigation being cited for, for not implementing social distancing because they value something. And again, I think this goes back to uh, something that Nadia said earlier, different countries have different values. And when uh, that's yet another question, that's a big set of questions. When it comes to policymaking and law, to what extent should policymaking reflect the good or what's right? So we have the morality of it, which is, okay, maybe the models are telling us that uh, if we mitigate, we save lives. Maybe morally, that's what we should do, right? Morally, we should be trying to save as many lives as possible. But then implementing that into a policymaking strategy may be a little bit more difficult because implementing those strategies may come at the cost of upsetting other values or something like that. So yeah, I think the value question is a big one. When it comes to public health policy in light of COVID, it's the question is values. What should we do ethically? So we've been speaking with Polo Camacho and Nadia Ruiz, two philosophers at, uh, studying philosophy of social science and philosophy of natural sciences about modeling and, uh, and especially in relation to COVID. Polo, Nadia, I'd like to thank you for joining me today. Thank you, David, for having us. There you thank go. It was a pleasure. Obviously, there are plenty of questions that I still have, and I think that could be raised, and perhaps we'll raise them on another occasion. Plenty of plenty of issues on the table, and, and we can't cover them all uh, on this episode, but future, future episode is in the works. But thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this discussion on COVID-19 and philosophy. Thank you.